Well, as usual, I'd be grateful if you could turn your attention to the handouts that I have. There's a multi-page 8.5 by 11, and then there's a one-page 8.5 by 11. And the printing on the one page reflects the quality of my own printer in my office downstairs. It's a, it tends to remember what was printed on the previous page as well as on the present one. We're looking at two psalms today. As I said, Psalm 93 and Psalm 110. And as we come to look at these two psalms, we are concluding our series on the psalms. We began early in September by looking at different psalms and we focused a bit differently because the psalms are being understood differently today than they were 40, even 50 years ago because scholars have come to realize what the early church and what Jesus, I believe, also saw, and that is that the Psalms are not arranged randomly, like pearls on a string, but instead, rather like um, a quilt that has been designed by a great-grandfather or a great-grandmother, it tells a story, and the order of the Psalms can be sequenced in such a way as a story is told. And if you were to compare the uh, NIV study Bible of uh, 2015 with that prior to 2000, you would find that there's a whole difference and that um, there's now kind of fresh insight that's coming um, into the Psalms and into the nature of God and his ways by looking at the sequencing of Psalms. So as we've looked at the Psalms over the past three months, we have spent less time looking at the individual Psalms and more time looking at the structure of the Psalms and seeing what God is saying, not only by what he says in the psalm, but by what he says in the way in which, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the psalms have been brought together into a book. So today on Christ the King Sunday, as we come to the end of this series, we look at Psalm 93 and Psalm 110, remembering the question with which we were left last Sunday. Remember last Sunday we came to the end of book three in the Psalms and we noticed that a crisis had emerged. God had promised that his son, that a son of David would be on the throne forever. And lo and behold, the Babylonians came and destroyed the kingdom and took away the king and the king's crown was lying in the dust. So the question before us as we move into book four and into book five, Psalm 93 being in book four, and Psalm 110 being in book five, is who is going to be the king? And at the end of book three, the message is kind of unclear. Um, Or is it? Because there was no doubt in the psalmist's mind or in anyone's, any of the biblical writer's minds that there was always going to be a son of David on the throne because God had made a solemn promise. And we learned last week that that solemn promise was as secure as the sun and the moon and the way that God has created the world. So there's as much chance of a son of David not ruling forever as there is the sun evaporating or the moon evaporating. Now that is a remarkable claim. Just think about that for a minute. When I was a graduate student and in my former career as an Old Testament scholar, I would often look at what ancient Near Eastern people had written about their kings. People always like their kings and they always hope that their kings will have a nice dynasty. 
Uh, so the Hittites would talk about how their king represents the sun and long may he reign forever. But in order to find those writings, you have to be an archeologist and you have to dig one of those things up and there are probably only about 100 people in the world that have ever read one of those things. And in a way, with ancient Israel, it was no different. Think about it, here is this little kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, uh, a, little, a little power between superpowers to the north and superpowers to the south. And along comes this bold claim, which we find in scripture, that the king that God has put on Mount Zion is gonna control the world. His wrath is gonna be poured out and people, nations will be judged by that son of David. Along comes Psalm 89, and things are looking grim. Things are looking as though that kingship may not materialize. So I want you to come on a journey with me as we move into books four and five of the Psalms in order to find the answer to the question, who is going to be the king of Israel? And Psalm 93 begins a series of about six or seven Psalms, Psalm 93, and then Psalm 95 to Psalm 100 that affirm what we already knew, what we saw in our banners when we had the children's lesson. Yahweh is king. So we read in Psalm 93, Yahweh has assumed kingship. And we're told that he is clothed with majesty, he has girded himself with strength. And just as we learned about the reign of David, we learned that God's kingship is as fixed as the world itself. It's not gonna go anywhere. It's permanent. And so the psalmist continues in verse two by saying, your throne has long been fixed, you are eternal. Well, if that's such a, force, if that's such a thing to be taken for granted, if that's a foregone conclusion, then why do we have Psalm 93? Well, we have Psalm 93 because the psalmist knew what you and I experience, that sometimes it seems as though there is an alien force that is wreaking havoc with God's kingship. And you begin to wonder who really is in control. And so in verses three and four, we find that the psalmist invokes ancient language about the cosmic waters. These are the waters of chaos that we learn about in Genesis 1-2 before God starts his, his act of generating light and of separating water from water and dry land from water. The cosmic waters have lifted up, O Yahweh. The cosmic waters have lifted up their voice, lifted up their roaring more than the sound of many waters. This is the psalmist's way of saying, when I look around my world, it seems as though things have come unglued. And I wonder, God, if you really are the king. But the psalmist says what we know in our hearts and what we experience if we hang in long enough to see God emerge in his reign again, as we do in the life and death and resurrection and lordship of Jesus. Yahweh is on high. He is the mighty ones. And then the psalmist continues in verse five by saying, your testimonies are very dependable. Your commandments are very dependable. As for your house, it is well suited in holiness. O Yahweh, to the end of days. There's a reference here to God's testimonies. Well, we've just been moving and talking about waters. We've been moving up talking about a fixed earth. And now we're talking about God's words. You see, in the Bible, God's moral precepts and his commandments and his words are part of the fabric of the cosmos. 
Just as the world has been ordered and God has fashioned the world that he way, in the way that he wants, so he has given us moral precepts that constitute order and then give us order. You know, God doesn't tell us not to commit murder because he's a, I don't know, a party pooper. He doesn't tell us not to commit adultery because he's a party pooper. He gives us those commands because he knows that if we break those commandments, things go haywire. There is just carnage. There's this... There's this unleashing of insecurity and guilt and anger and sin and rivalry. So God's testimonies are, de are, are dependable and we need to be reminded of that and we can be reminded of that when we think of God in heaven, well-suited in holiness, reigning until the end of days. My friends, God is in control. The American author Lloyd Douglas, who uh, is best known for his books, The Robe and The Magnificent Obsession, uh, Douglas having lived from uh, 1877 to around 1950, he used to tell how he liked to go and visit a violin teacher. This violin teacher just seemed to have kind of an enthusiasm and a, and a kind of a, a godly wisdom that he admired. So one day, Douglas wandered into the violin teacher's office and he said, well, what's the good news today, sir? Well, putting down his violin, the teacher stepped over to a tuning fork suspended from a cord and struck it with a smart blow. Ong. This is good news for today, he said. That, my friend, is the musical note A. A all day yesterday. It will be A all next week and for a thousand years. And of course, in saying that, uh, Douglas was reminded of the fact that God has ordained the world in a way that's remarkably consistent. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God has ordained the world in such a way that the molecules behave in the same way, that gravity behaves in the same way, physics, chemistry, biology behave in the same way. And he's fixed this because he is the governor of the world. John Bate, in his book, Encyclopedia of Illustrations of Moral and Religious Truth, wrote this. Each successive moment all over the world, the act of creation must be repeated. The existence of the world witnesses to a perpetuity of creating influences. Active omnipotence must flood the universe or its machinery stops and its very existence terminates. I remember being struck by that the first time I realized that uh, God didn't just make you once. He continues to make you because your skin cells die and you have to have new ones that are generated. And the, uh, the parts that make up you, in most cases, are not the same little parts that made up you a long time ago. They continue to be regenerated. So, my friends, God is in control. God is on high. And come what may, come the rising of your cosmic waters, coming the overflowing of those things that seem to make you and your surroundings and indeed the whole world Nations at war and so on come unglued. Yahweh on high is mighty. So friends, it seems as though we should be calling this Sunday not Christ the King Sunday, but God the King Sunday. Well, already in Psalm 93, there is a bit of a mystery. You see, in verse 1, it says, and scholars have long pondered this, Yahweh has become king. Yahweh has assumed kingship. Well, Yahweh's always been king. I mean, the psalm goes on to tell us that in the, very next, in the very next verse. Your throne has long been fixed. You are eternal. So the question that arises for us is, 
what is new and different about Yahweh's kingship now? And that takes us to Psalm 110. Before we go to Psalm 110, I want to give us a little clue about that conundrum. What is new about Yahweh's kingship? Last week, when we looked at Psalm 89, we realized that David's kingship seemed to be in peril. The covenant that God made with David seemed to be in ruins. Then comes Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is the only psalm in the Bible that is written by Moses. And Moses intercedes like he did when the Sinaitic covenant was broken. So with the Davidic covenant apparently broken, Moses comes and he intercedes. And Psalm 91 and Psalm 92 seem like God's way of saying, Moses, I've heard your prayer and I'm going to do something about it. Stay with me for a second. Psalm 89, then we have Psalm 90, 91, 92. Friends, on the third psalm after Yahweh has assumed kingship, I can't help but see here, and I'm being a little bit allegorical, a parallel between this and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just as three days after the son of David was put in a grave, so now Yahweh is proclaiming his kingship on that same interval when he brought Jesus back from the dead. And now Yahweh's kingship is something a bit different. It's the same as always, but it's been affirmed in a new way. And of course, this takes us from the uh, fourth book to the fifth book. And in the fifth book of Psalms, we're told that it's not just God who reigns, but that God has decided to reign in conjunction with that of his son, David. And so look at Psalm 110 with me for a moment, if you will. Let me remind us as we come to Psalm 110 what I've said already, that in book four, and you can read a little summary of book four in your notes later on, that there's a question arising about who is going to be king. And it seems according to book four that Yahweh is going to be king. But then again in book five, Psalms 107 to 150, in which lies Psalm 110, David has reappeared on the scene as it were. David has risen from the dead as it were, and his kingship seems to continue. And so in Psalm 110, which is the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament, David, who is, whom we are told is the author of this poem, we're to understand him as the author, and we've been reminded week after week that David was not just a poet, but a prophet. Here, David gives an oracle. And David says, prophecy of Yahweh concerning my Lord. So Yahweh is saying to David's Lord, you've got David, you've got Yahweh, and then there's somebody in between the human David and the divine Yahweh. And Yahweh speaks to David's Lord. And he says, sit at your, my right hand until I place your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Yahweh will stretch forth your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Friends, here we learn what we learned in Psalm 2, which was an introduction to the book of Psalms. That Yahweh exercises his kingship in conjunction with that of his Messiah. And that Messiah, of course, matches perfectly as any can possibly be our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so here David receives a prophecy, so we're told, and Peter reminded us of this in Acts chapter 2, that David died long ago, and he was raised from the dead according to Psalm 16, but now it seems as though David has been exalted to the right hand of God. David's uh, heir, a superhuman heir. And now this heir is told to reign in the same way that God reigns. So my friends, let me tell you what you already know, but just think of it as a fresh. Here is ancient prophecy written hundreds of years before Jesus. We're in the Old Testament. We're not in the New. We've been talking about Jesus for weeks from the Old Testament alone. Here David has a prophecy about one of his ancestors who's going to be superhuman, who executes the reign of God on God's behalf. That's the way that God wants it to be. That's the way that God has ordained it to be. So when Jesus appeared on the scene, it wasn't just kind of, oh, surprise, here's a Messiah, and he's the Savior. No, this is the way that God has ordained it from the very beginning. He planned that Jesus would be the agent of his reign on earth. And so we're right to look to the Lord Jesus and to look for his teachings and to look to his character as a way of shaping our lives, because when we look at Jesus, we look at God. So where do we fit into all of this? Well, we fit into all of this in, verses, in verse 4, or sorry, in, in verse, um, where do we fit into all this? In verse 3 of Psalm 110, your people will voluntarily enlist on the day of your armament in holy garments from the womb of the dawn. To you, your youth are as the dew. I have to tell you, frankly, that that verse is, uh, is hard to understand, and its, its meaning has been lost to time. But what does seem clear is that the Lord is relying upon his followers, his people, to volunteer, to sign up, to join in the conquest effort of the kingdom. And that enlistment is voluntary, and it's essential. And when we do that, we participate in the reign of God, and we execute the reign of Christ. And we form a group that are like a refreshing dew to the Lord. Jesus is encouraged by our participation, as he often was with his disciples. Not that they always did it. Remember in the garden, Jesus wanted them to stay awake with me for a little bit longer, and they failed. But then he gave them the Great Commission, and we, as God's people, are to continue the reign of Christ, uh, which is also uh, the reign of God. My friends, we have a part to play, and that part to play includes affirming one more thing, and that thing is that Jesus, the Messiah, is also our high priest. You see, it would be kind of flattering if we had a king who said, why don't you come and conquer with me and march away? But no, Jesus was also declared to be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, in keeping with that, that which was promised to David. And of course, a priest is somebody who makes an offering before God on behalf of the people, and is someone who mediates and who intercedes before God on behalf of his people. And Jesus continues that mediator role on our behalf right now. And of course, he offered a sacrifice on our behalf to atone for our sins. And as we learn in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus continues to be our high priest, and he reigns on high. My friends, as I said last week, uh, I hope that you find yourself encouraged by what you read from the Psalms. Because 
We're not reading Hittite documents about the reign of the next Hittite king. Uh, we're reading something that seemed as unlikely as a promise about a Hittite or an Aramean king who would rule forever, but lo and behold, Jesus came. He died, he rose again from the dead, he ascended, and he sits at the right hand of God to intervene on high. And his Davidic kingship continues in the same way that God's kingship continues. My friends, two things. I've mentioned them already. Let me just say them briefly again as I close. When the world doesn't seem to be in control, remember, it is. Even when countries are torn apart and terrible things happen, we can be reminded that God is still in control. And we can also be reminded that God has given us a part in his rule. And he wants us to be faithful, proactive, uh, courageous followers who proclaim the news of Jesus Christ. I watched the Santa Claus Parade today, and I wasn't surprised to see that it even is getting have less to do with Santa Claus than it does with Jesus. Uh, pizza Pizza had uh, pizza slices on the parade, and the pizza slices were twirling around, and uh, we had, the, we had the, the Chinese society with their dragons saying happy Merry Christmas, which was, which was lovely, but there was, there was everything under the sun except Jesus. And as I put out the sign for the church, Joe and Tick and I, like we did early this afternoon, and as we had literature, my heart just kind of went out and said, you know, I hope there's a church in that parade. I hope there's somebody in that parade who's gonna pick up a banner and say, Jesus is king. Because it's true, and it's the source of our salvation. Last week at Synod, we heard somebody talk about Jesus, and he kept on saying, you know, when people find out what you know, if they ever find out, they're going to say, why didn't anybody tell me this before? I mean, here I was going to parades, uh, cheering for pizza slices as they went by. And you mean to tell me? that Jesus rose from the dead and he reigns on high and he has a role for me to play? He does, my friends. And that is nothing short of good news. Amen.